What do you expect or hope for from a sermon? As the preacher makes way to the pulpit, do you say, well, here we go again? Or do you say, here we go again? (laughs) So your expectations and hopes maybe get a new insight into a well-known verse or passage, maybe to be challenged, maybe to be comforted, maybe to be entertained, maybe to have a sermon confirm something that you already know and agree with. As a sermon preacher, my hopes are that the congregation won't be bored, that they may learn something new and that they may be inspired to live a little differently. But what if you don't agree with something in the sermon? I think that sermons or speeches or books that I don't agree with are really very helpful. They force me to work out why I don't agree and in that way they help me to understand my own convictions. Now I preached this sermon last Wednesday at the Wednesday service and as people left I was left in no doubt that not everybody agreed with everything I had said. Now that's good and that's healthy and that shows that people listened and analysed and some disagreed. So what are your hopes and expectations about the sermon you're about to hear? I'm told that there are two kind of sermon hearers. There are some who come to the end of a sermon greatly refreshed. And there are some who come to the end of a sermon greatly inspired. I hope that you'll be in the second category. And just one other thought. There was a chap on Facebook whose name was Archibald McLeish. And he said this. Religion is at its best when it makes us ask hard questions of ourselves. Religion is at its worst when it deludes us into thinking we have the answers for everybody else. So maybe I don't have the answer for you this morning, but let's get into the sermon. Pecking order. It's an important feature in some people's lives and in many organisations' lives. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to commission the new dean of the cathedral. Pecking order is important. Who pecks first? Governor, Premier or Lord Mayor? Local member, Archbishop or visiting... Oh. To work out who does what when, where they sit and what they... It's just been extraordinary. So who has the right to go first? Who has the right to have first taste? Which child has the right to sit in the front seat of the car? Pegging order is very important. In our Gospel reading today, we have a glimpse into some first century pecking order among the groups who are trying to get Jesus tripped up and tripped over into trouble. So I want to begin by sorting out these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Scribes and the Herodians. Who were they, what were the differences and who pecked first? In our Gospel reading today we've got Herodians and Pharisees. So we'll start with the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were a bunch of experts in the Jewish religion and in a very important part of it. The Jews had the law, the Torah, written and given to Moses. But the Jews also had an oral tradition. If you like, the oral tradition was the explanation of the law and it was the tradition that covered all the nitty-gritties that the law didn't cover. Now, to be a bit rude about them, the Pharisees were not only nitty-gritters, but they were also nitty-pickers. Who was pure enough to go into the temple? And who was pure enough to satisfy God? Ask the Pharisees. They knew because they had the oral tradition. And because they knew, they imposed their interpretation of the law on the Jewish people. You follow the law this way, they said. And so the Pharisees were influential and powerful over the people. And they believed in a resurrection life. And they thought they pecked first. The Sadducees, this was another bunch of experts in the Jewish religion, but in a different part of it. The Jews had the law, the Torah, written and given to Moses. The Sadducees were real experts in the written law. Blow the oral tradition that the Pharisees emphasised. It was the written law that was important, said the Sadducees. They poured over the scrolls of the law. They knew every comma, every semicolon, every word, every jot and tittle. And they also controlled the worship in the temple. If the Pharisees could tell you who was pure enough to go into the temple, the Sadducees could tell you what to do once you were inside the temple. It's as though the Pharisees were on the outside of the temple, checking your credentials for going in, and the Sadducees were on the inside of the temple, checking what you did in there to make sure it complied with the written law. And the Sadducees were the powerful elite of first century Judaism. They held great political influence with the Roman Empire. And the Romans, therefore, were far more interested in the Sadducees than they were with the Pharisees. The Romans thought the Sadducees pecked first. And there was a vital belief difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection life. And as my father used to say, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That is why they were sad, you see. You won't forget it, will you? On your dad. So we have Pharisees, religious, oral tradition, nitpickers. The Sadducees, religious, written law, influence with the Romans. With me so far? Good. Two to go. The scribes were a third bunch. They were not specifically a religious bunch of experts, but they knew what the written law said because one of their jobs was to write out the written law when you needed another copy. They knew, therefore, the written law nearly as well as the Sadducees did, and the scribes knew what it meant and how it applied to life. And the scribes also wrote other kind of documents, of course. Not everybody could write. So they wrote letters, invoices, secular documents, reports. 
and they definitely pecked third in line. And then we have the Herodians, the fourth bunch. They were not religious at all. They were political. The Herodians derived their name as followers of King Herod. The Herodians were a political party that supported King Herod Antipas, who was like a puppet of the Roman Empire in Palestine. The Herodians wanted to restore a King Herod to the throne of the whole of Palestine and not have the Romans there at all. But they were the political foes of the Pharisees because the Pharisees said, well, we don't want Herod. We want someone descended from King David to be on the throne. So you Herodians, go away. We want a, a Davidian. The Herodians had political power and their support of Herod got them offside with the Pharisees because they saw that it compromised Jewish independence. There was one thing, however, that the Herodians and Pharisees really agreed on, getting rid of Jesus. King Herod really wanted Jesus dead. The Pharisees had already hatched plots against him. So the Herodians and the Pharisees joined efforts in achieving this common goal of dealing with Jesus. The Herodians pecked in a completely different chookyard to the Sadducees, Pharisees and the scribes. I wonder, men, if you could check your footwear. Have I bored your socks off? Because that's the end of the background. Okay. So, we come today to another loaded question about G- to Jesus from the Herodians and the Pharisees. Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus said yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, out the window went his influence and appeal to the Jewish people. They'd see him as a traitor. But if Jesus said, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he could be arrested for sedition and revolution. They had Jesus no matter what he said. A trap without an escape. Clever question. Clever answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Jesus' followers then and now belong in two worlds the world of God's power and the world of human power. We can't withdraw from the world of human power. We can't withdraw from the state. We can't live 100% as civic, non-contributing citizens because we're all wrapped up in God's kingdom. We need the agencies that the state provides. We need health services. We need road maintenance. We need schools. Goodness me, we need superannuation. But as Christians, we can't withdraw from God's kingdom and live 100% in the kingdom of human power because as Christians, we need the fellowship and the worship and the symbols and the actions of Christian life and witness. So what is our Christian attitude to the state? 
And how do we render unto Caesar, the government, the things that belong to Caesar? When you read St Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 13, St Paul reminds us that the state is ordained by God. From a Christian point of view, the state is the visible expression of God's rulership over the world. Because as Christians we believe that God's rulership is in the hands of the people we elect, we are therefore glad to obey the laws they pass. For some previous kings of England thought that God made them directly, they had a divine right of rulership. That's not quite what we're saying here. Without the laws of the state, our life would be chaos. And it's in obeying the laws of the state that we render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We don't like paying taxes. We don't like the GST. We don't like other duties. But they are the way that those in power receive the income they need to provide the services they provide for us. We cannot honourably receive all the benefits of living in the state and then opt out of all the responsibilities of being citizens of the state. Paying taxes are rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now both Jesus and St Paul indicate that Christians have a responsibility to respect the state especially one such as in Australia and South Australia that it's a democracy and whose federal and state parliaments begin every day's proceedings with a prayer for God's guidance and with the Lord's Prayer. We may not agree with everything that our government does and we do have a right to make our different opinion known and our voice heard in peaceful and sensible protest, in petitions, in speeches and at the ballot box. Do you remember those marvellous speeches by Martin Luther King Jr. against the American government's policy of racial discrimination? But on the whole, our Christian duty is to respect those who exercise God's rulership, to pray for them, and to let them know when we think they are doing a good job and to let them know when we think that they are not doing a good job. Neither Jesus nor St Paul lived in a democratic government, far from it. And yet they encourage us to respect the government. In all ordinary circumstances, our Christianity should make us better citizens. And as responsible thinking, careful, concerned citizens who happen to be Christians. Let us render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. So,